With Mark, I greet you. I'm Joel, and I'm happy that you're all here. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices, or you'll find it on your bulletin printed, to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 40. Now, if you're here last evening, we looked at James 1, verses 5 to 8. We found that there's a request that when prayed sincerely, God will always answer. Anybody remember the prayer request that God would always answer you for? Wisdom, Mike. God always gives wisdom when you ask for it. You know whose life is proof? Alvin York's. Sergeant Alvin York. Anybody know who Sergeant Alvin York was? I see Sam in the back, Mark over here. Sergeant Alvin York was the most decorated American war hero of World War I. On October 18th, 1918, York's division, the 82nd, was told to move in on the Germans who were, had a well-defended position in the Argonne Forest in France. Now, the Germans actually anticipated this coming, and they set a trap to draw the 82nd in, and it worked. The 82nd found themselves suddenly in a three-sided kill zone, machine guns just firing in on their positions. The group that York was in, they're pinned down, and they were ordered to charge ahead into some ridge far ahead. They had no idea where they were going. Seventeen of them made it. They escaped this trap, this kill zone, and they found themselves behind enemy lines. In fact, they stumbled upon two German soldiers carrying water tins who were so surprised they dropped the tins and then booked it back to tell about the breach. They chased these guys down and ran in, these 17, into a group of 70 German soldiers who were so unprepared that they all surrendered because the Americans had their guns out. So these 70 dropped their weapons. They got them all huddled together. And another group of Germans saw this going on and began to fire on their position, killing all but eight of them. And suddenly York, who was a corporal, was now in charge. These eight, seven lives were all upon him. Oh, and I forgot to mention, York was a conscientious objector to war. He had never, ever even killed a man. He had first sought to be exempted from the war when the draft came. And he prayed to God for wisdom about what to do. And then he enlisted. And now here he was. In the position he had sought to avoid, but he learned that this was his God-given responsibility. So you know what York did as they're firing on him and all these captured troops? He charged up the hill, somehow avoided being shot, and came upon 19 soldiers who had no idea, and he killed them off one by one by one. And then another group of Germans saw him started firing, and so he had to run back down the hill to where all those captured troops were and his guys And seven of those Germans then charged him. They didn't have guns, but they had bayonets. And he shot them with his pistol, one after another. The last guy he simply shot in his abdomen. He fell down and was bleeding. At which point, the German lieutenant walked up to him and begged him to to let this man live, to spare his life, and to stop killing all the German troops. And York agreed, and the German lieutenant blew his whistle and ordered all the men who were up there firing on their position to surrender. York walked back to the American camp with all these captured troops, him and the seven guys they still had remaining. And he met with the the commander, and the commander says, I hear you've captured the whole German army. 
York said, no, sir. I've only captured 132 of them. <laughs> York received the Medal of Honor for saving his unit, killing 25 enemies single-handedly, and capturing 132 more. All this from a man who was wrestling with how he could both serve God and country. There's actually an old movie that portrays York when he was wrestling over his allegiance to God and country before he went off to fight. And he's sitting on the mountain with his Bible. And he's looking to God for wisdom from above. And the wind suddenly picks up and begins to blow the pages of his Bible. And it opens up to a particular page. York picks it up and he reads Jesus' words we're about to read right now, the scene we have before us. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at this very hour. That's Jesus. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Then came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age are merry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, for they are equal to angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all to live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask and pray that you will meet with us right now, that you'll send your spirit and show us the risen Christ. And Lord, I pray that this poor lisping, stammering tongue may distract in no way, may bring no error. And should it do so, I pray that you will 
blot these thoughts out, but only your truth will be revealed to us who are so in need of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I reread verse 19 from this, to remind us of the scene we saw last week. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Last week, we saw Jesus in front of a large crowd, and the religious readers walked in and tried to take Jesus down. We talked about how it was a heavyweight fight. They questioned Jesus about his authority in the temple, to which Jesus then asked them a question. He asked them whether John's baptism came from heaven or from man. Apparently, this was a really good question because the religious leaders, they had to huddle up together and bang their heads together trying to figure out a good answer. You see, if they say yes, they will look bad for rejecting Jesus. If they say no, the crowd will turn on them and they'll end up being stoned. They're sitting here racking their brains and they couldn't come up with a good answer. So finally, one of them was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's just plead the fifth. And of course, all these guys just looked at him like, what are you talking about? He's like, I know it makes no sense right now, but in 2,000 years, it'll be a really good answer. Okay, just trust me on this. So they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we're pleading the fifth here. It didn't work out so well because it turned out to be just egg all over their face. Jesus both put them in their place and he proved his authority. After which then he gives a parable that they actually understood. So it really wasn't a parable in one sense because it told them what they were up to, why they were doing it, and how he truly had authority. And that made them so mad as we read about. They decided we need a new strategy. We can't just full on come at Jesus. We're going to have to trap him, lure him in. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. The head-on frontal attack failed, so now they start a covert operation. They send guys who pretend to be with Jesus. These guys may have been actually traveling with Jesus. Oh, we want to be your disciples, Jesus. And all the while they're plotting and strategizing so how they can figure out a way to entrap him so they can turn him over to Pilate, to the governor. And in verse 21, they set the trap. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Do you hear the serpent's hiss behind all this flattering words? The buttery flattery. Wow, Jesus, you're such a great teacher. You don't care about anyone's opinions. You truly teach God's way. They're luring him in so they can spring the trap, the taxes trap. That's what tribute is, taxes. Now, recall before what had happened. Jesus had hit these leaders with what we call an either-or question. John's baptism, either from heaven or from man, yes or no, and put these leaders on the horns of a dilemma they could not figure out. Think about it. To their credit, these spies now adopt Jesus' strategy in order to ensnare him. And Jesus is in a real trap. This has, you have to see this as a kill zone. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, he makes himself out to be an insurrectionist. And the spies, they'll head off right away to report Jesus 
to the, as a threat to Rome. Jesus would actually remember as a boy somebody did this very thing. It caused a huge rebellion, and Rome had to squash them. That's why actually Rome keeps extra soldiers in during the Passover week. They had extra soldiers ready, just waiting for someone to dare say something like this. Jesus can't say no. Jesus says, yes, pay the tax. All his followers are going to feel he's just double-crossed them. These poor Jews are being bled dry. These are enemy occupiers who have them under their thumb. The crowd's going to turn on him, at which point then the religious leaders can come in and take him out. Do you see why we need to have wisdom? When questions, especially about our duties to government, come? I commented last week that we live in an age of lots and lots and lots of information and very, very little wisdom. We have more information than ever, and we have less wisdom that I hear, especially when you watch the news and social media. Friends, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and quick to ask God for wisdom, if or how to answer people. Realize that oftentimes an either-or question, a yes or no, this is a trap. It's actually a logical fallacy oftentimes. It's a trick that the lawyers use all the time, right? Just answer the question, yes or no. What if a lawyer asked me, have you stopped beating your wife? Answer yes or no. (laughs) That's a catch-22, isn't it? If I've never touched my wife, I'm in trouble if I answer either way. Those can't be my only two options. Do you see? Let a little bell go off in your head every time you hear someone say this or that. Yes or no. Because the answer... They're saying the answer can't be both or that there's no good third way. We need to be wise in our day when we have a lot of folks who hate Christians and hate our teacher, Jesus. They want to destroy Christian values in our culture. So we need to be wise as we see Jesus is here who does not answer yes or no. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. One of these spies digs out a coin, puts it, pulls it out of their pocket, holds it up, and there it is. Caesar's inscription stamped on it. The same way if I was holding up an American dollar or five dollars, you'd see Abraham Lincoln or Washington, right? Jesus gives them then a brilliant answer as they hold this up. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Do you see how brilliant Jesus is? <laughs> he escapes the trap unscathed. Jesus answers this either or question with a both and. He says, you are obligated to both, to God and to government. Maybe just now Jesus just rubbed you the wrong way. He's just seeing a sticker. Trust no authority. (laughs) There's so much anger at our government. You hear Jesus just got political on you? Actually, Jesus is being both political and religious. Jesus says we must render to Caesar what is his. By the way, that means that dollar bill you have, it bears your government's inscription. So the tax that you rendered 
was not your money in the first place. It was your debt to Caesar. That's what Jesus is saying. Do we think about think that way when we're writing our check come tax time, our hard-earned money? Do we think that way? Luke fully understands that taxes are a heavy burden. His gospel opened up with Joseph, Jesus' father, having to register in Bethlehem to be taxed. Do you think Joseph was happy about having to take his pregnant wife through hill country many, many miles so he can get himself a brand new tax burden? But it sure worked out for his good, didn't it? And for our good, didn't it? And to the glory of God. In the same way, we are called to trust and obey, even in our day. We have obligations to the leaders that God places over us. Paul says this, look in Romans 13. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, honor the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter says we are to fear God and honor the emperor. And I like that Peter says, be subject, be subject to the human institutions God places over us. Christians are to see themselves probably less as citizens and more as subjects. We're to hold our American citizenship, our national citizenship very lightly. We'll actually see this is true of marriage in the next passage. You see, America is a temporal realm. Where's the Roman Empire today? We live in this place as temporary subjects. At the same time, while living in America, we are to be honoring it, investing in it, paying taxes, obeying all laws in the Lord, helping out our neighbors, even to our own risk, our own harm, like Alvin York, who heard God's answer and decided to refuse the war exemption offer he was granted. We are to subject ourselves to human institutions and we are to fear God. There's the religious question. Giving everything to God that bears his image. What bears God's image in this world? You do, my friends. You bear God's image. You are made in the image of God. Genesis 1. God made you, placed his inscription upon you. And since this is true, Jesus is saying you are to give yourself unreservedly to God wherever he places you. Something Jesus asks you, asks me, asks everyone today is, what does it mean for you to give to God what belongs to him? Namely, yourself. What does it mean for you to give to God what belongs to him? How well are we as American Christians giving ourselves to God? There are Christians in nations with far, far less freedom than ours who I believe live far more freely than we do. They live far more unreservedly, far more uninhibited in their allegiance to God. 
Politics is no hindrance to their life or their witness. In fact, it emboldens it in many ways. We as Christians in America ought never to be known in the first place for our political views. We are to see that we are subjects here, subjects under a very temporary rule. And that, what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This next passage is about the resurrection. Friends, Jesus' return and resurrection free us to live sacrificial lives under any leadership, no matter how bad it is. Because this is not our home. We're just passing through on our way to a greater glory. Because this one standing up in the temple right now saying this did not grasp for political power. But in just a matter of day or two, he's going to allow the powers of this age to spread his arms on the hard wood of the cross in order to purchase you and I for God. If Jesus' teaching here reminds us that we belong to God by our creation, Jesus' action in a couple days reminds us that we belong to God by redemption. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Friends, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. As I thought about this week, I found myself, like these in the temple right now, marveling over Jesus' answer. Are you marveling over Jesus' answer here? Maybe not. What's going on in your heart? Doubt? Dubiousness? That's okay. Jesus now has a word for the skeptic in us too. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Children, there is a help for us here. Here's a help for us all, actually. You have these religious groups in Jesus' day, and you probably hear these names all the time. It gets confusing. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Essenes. We won't talk about them. Here's a way you can help your parents remember the difference. You have the Pharisees who like to look down on others and brag about their own righteousness. So the next time, children, you want to tattle on another kid, your sibling maybe, thinking you are so much better, at this moment, stop, look in the mirror and say, that's not fair, I see, because I'm a sinner too, and I need as much mercy and grace as they do. Jesus has grace and mercy for me. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Now, the Sadducees, they're much easier because they are their name. They're sad, you see. <laughs> Why? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that this life was all there is. They're actually religious. They have the first five books of Moses, and that's all they have. But they want to fit in with modern culture, the Hellenized culture of their day. And that's why they're so sad, you see. Skeptics, actually, you may meet them. They may not be sad. They actually may be happier than Christians. 
But they're living such a sad life, you see, because they have no future. They can see no future. They can envision no future. These Sadducees, they're the intellectual guys who act like they have all the answers. They're actually the real heavyweights in this temple. But here's the thing. They have no hope. They're without hope in the resurrection, so they're without hope, period. Here's the thing. They can't envision anything beyond this life, this world. They can't think of anything more than this. By the way, we experience this all the time. We're inundated with it. We're up to our eyeballs in it. An existential thought is what it's called. What that means is, and you hear this all the time, life is about the journey, not the destination. It's all about the journey. This actually was built upon rationalism that argued against the supernatural, against God. By the way, rationalism is not based on evidence. Rationalism is based on ethics. I've had conversations with rationalists, and you can put evidence in front of them. They're not interested in it. It's Paul Simon again and again. A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. You got me in a saw Paul Simon kicks, sorry. It always comes down to, I want to live how I want to live. I want to determine my own reality. And I won't have God, this man, reign over me. So I will pretend that he doesn't exist. As though a character written into the story can suddenly say, I'm the author. John Lennon probably captured my parents' generation by imagining a world where there's no heaven. And that was the springboard to Bon Jovi's existential anthem of my generation. It's not as nearly as good a rhyme. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. My heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. And by the way, he's quoting Frank Sinatra there, who really set the plate before this. By bragging at his curtain call, I never once kneeled. I never said the words, one who kneels. But he will, as we all will, either willingly or unwillingly. Friends, this way of thinking is a house of cards. And we need to ask God for wisdom and how to identify it in our day. Because we're up to our eyeballs. You can almost can hardly even breathe without it being coming at you. If we take up the flimsy material offered by this world, it will be a house of cards for us. But God has something so much better in store for you and I. The Sadducees think they're wise. They're living as educated skeptics. They are religious, but they carry a really small Bible, just the first five books. They reject every book that actually said anything about the resurrection. And they walk up to Jesus with their favorite stump the Pharisee question. They had these debates between the two parties. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but they didn't have an answer to the skeptics. Their basic, they said the basic premise that God gave us marriage as an institution, this makes the resurrection inconceivable. They're appealing to Moses' law of leveret marriage. If a husband died or before the wife was able to give birth to a son, well, his name and inheritance could be lost, and that meant everything for this culture. So God gave a provision where the brother would marry the widow to raise up a son, an offspring, so that that name wouldn't be lost. You may remember this from Ruth, which we preached in December. So some skeptics walk up and say, Jesus, how are you teaching the resurrection too like the Pharisees? That's really right. So how is this situation going to work out in heaven? They tell the story of a husband who dies. The first brother marries the widow. This brother dies, and so number two marries, and then he dies, and number three, and number four, even though 
it would never get this far. I'm sorry if I'm brother five. I'm saying over my dead body, I'm marrying that woman. These big-headed Pharisees, you know what they're doing? They're using another argument, reductio ad absurdum, another logical fallacy, to show just how ridiculous it would be if there is a resurrection. You do realize they didn't have to kill off seven brothers. They didn't have to kill off seven to make their point. They could have stopped at two, right? These wise guys just enjoy making believers look stupid. Do you see that today in our culture? Jesus, imagine all these people running around heaven trying to figure out who they're married to. And uh... Remember, they're sad, you see. They're sad, you see. Because the best heaven they can imagine is only a slightly better version of this life. Don't ever buy into a gospel where the heaven that is being preached is only a slightly better version of this life. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Note Jesus is making a contrast between this age and that age. This is the age where we marry. And the resurrection age is for those worthy to attain where we'll be equal to angels. Now, I'm not going to speculate on what equality with the angels <laughs> means, other than I know it means we're going to be immortal. I'll add, though, we're not going to be, you know, on, with wings on our back and sitting on a cloud strumming a harp, you know. <laughs> this is how our culture has trivialized heaven. I'm sorry. If heaven means I have to sit for a billion years playing a harp, I'd be bored to death. I want nothing to do with that. That is how our culture has trivialized heaven. That's not what it's going to be like. No, the age to come is going to be infinitely better than these little minds can even imagine. And I can imagine a lot. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Our tiny little brains, as hard as we can think, can I even begin to conceive His promises, he says it's going to be such a blessing. That's why he's saying better is one day in your court than a thousand days here on earth of the best life. It's so much better. It's going to be so much better that just think about it. One of the greatest blessings that he has given to humankind that maybe you've known isn't even going to make it in. Marriage. There's going to be no marriage in heaven. Let me ask you what you think about that. Some of us spend our whole young lives anticipating our wedding day. But Jesus says there's something to be preparing for that is better and far more eternal. Those of you who've had bad marriages, maybe have never married, maybe you find comfort here in this. I'll confess I struggle to believe Jesus when he tells me the age to come will be better because I won't be married to the woman I love so much. Others, you may feel likewise. You may be wondering, well, then what's the point of marriage? Actually, marriage is the whole point of the age to come. It's the whole point. Because in the age to come, we won't need the copy anymore. We will have the real deal that marriage was always pointing forward to. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, 
who is the one who loves us, who is love, and the giver of every pleasure and joy you've ever experienced here. Every believer is on their way to a wedding, whether you're single or married. Singles. This means if you intend to stay that way, well, you are nonetheless engaged. And if you want a spouse, well, that's not the end game. You see, your longing for union with another is just a heavenly homing beacon (laughs) pointing you to something better. Ephesians 5, Paul elaborates a little on this. He talks about the profound mystery of a man and a wife coming together. It's pointing us to Christ and his bride, the church, a glory unlike anything we've ever known. I think this is extra hard to grasp in our hypersexualized culture that there'll be no sex in heaven. That's why all the false religions out there, they can't imagine, so they, they say, oh, there'll be sex in heaven. You know a religion's false the moment they say there's sex in heaven, okay? They can't imagine happiness without it. C.S. Lewis talks about a small boy who cannot imagine anything better than chocolate <laughs> and how vain it is to try and tell him that there's greater bodily pleasures. He writes, the boy knows chocolate. He does not the po- the positive thing That excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses. The other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. It's going to be so much better. (laughs) See why the skeptics are so sad you see the skeptics of today? Some of them may live out very happy lives. You see all their pics on social media with all the smiley faces. But they choose to rejoice like little children making mud pies in the slum because they cannot imagine the greater offer of a holiday at the beach, the holiday at sea. They're far too easily pleased. So after just uncovering the smallness of their vision, Jesus now hits them by proving the resurrection from their own little abridged Bible version. (laughs) Verse 37, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. You see what Jesus has done? He says, Guys, I've got to take you all the way back to Moses 101, you know, the burning bush scene that everyone knows so well. Jesus says, think it through. It's 400 years after the patriarchs died, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. No. And more than just the present tense, think of the possessive tense. Even though they are dead, they've been dead a long time, God is still claiming them. They're his. He's saying, I didn't abandon them, Moses. In fact, I'm still blessing Abraham, blessing you through Abraham. Jesus has really got him here. (laughs) Jesus is saying, did you completely miss out on how committed God is to his own? God promised to bless Abraham with an everlasting covenant, everlasting. How could it be true if Abraham is not raised up to receive his reward? God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. (laughs) 
I would love to be at that scene because some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party, they find themselves praising Jesus. They're just trying to kill him. Now they're rooting him on. Jesus' wisdom, his Bible knowledge, just sent their greatest opponents to the door. Jesus, they threw their best pitch at Jesus, and Jesus knocked it out of the park, you know, and now you have the whole crowd cheering, hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more. Go home and get some tissues, you Sadducees. You're real looking Sadducee. These Pharisees, though, they're in no better shape. Because actually, they're thinking they can attain that age by their own goodness, their own righteousness. I was actually talking to someone last week who said that very thing. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't go to church. I'm figuring out my own faith, who I want to believe in. But I'm a good person, so don't worry about me. The only way we attain, Jesus talked about those who attain. How do you attain? Is to come to the point where you realize you can't figure it out on your own. You can't be good enough. Trying to be good, that is just a... I've met folks who say that, who said that, and I've actually seen them on their deathbeds filled with regret. Because we all know, deep down, none of us have been good enough. Or, if we've only been living for this world, how awful it is, then you have to let it go. It's pulled out of your grasp. Don't let that be you, my friends. Here's actually a call to wisdom. Here's a call to the cross, which is the wisdom of God. In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, Paul writes, Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age have understood this. Or if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. <laughs> Why does Paul note the rulers of this age and how they see the cross as foolishness? Why? Why is it so much foolishness to so many around us? Friends, because the cross tells the truth on us. We can't get right with God on our own. It took the murder of the Son of God, a cursed cross, to deal with our sin and shame. It's bad news. It has to be bad news first. But it is good news when you do see it as the wisdom of God because it undoes our foolishness. Jesus holds forth the good news that he attained what you can never. And all you have to do is confess your need and turn to Jesus in faith. And then by God's grace and spirit, live for him as you look forward to the resurrection and to heaven. And now you're called to seek for wisdom at how to live for him in this present age. Like Alvin York, who chose to risk his life for his fellow men, both honoring his country and fearing God. I think he gives us something to think about this morning. I'm going to close with C.S. Lewis one more time. C.S. Lewis writes, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world 
were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since that Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Let that not be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent our Lord Jesus who is the wisdom from above and we ask and pray right now that you will give us wisdom, Father, at how to live in this world in such a way that we can honor the human institutions you placed over us while fearing you and keeping our eyes fixed on the resurrection glory to come. Father, we live in an age of those who are skeptics. We live in an age of those who are seeking to undermine the Christian faith for their own agendas. And we ask and pray that you might help us to be wise as serpents, yet harmless as doves. We pray that you might give us your spirit in new measure, that in fact we might be aware of the traps before us, that we might not grow weary or afraid, Lord, at what men can do to us, but knowing that you are a good father, you've made us your own, you've given us precious promises in Christ, and we can be bold and wise and know that the things that we will do are going to have lasting effect. And we do pray that we might bless those around us and pass the baton on, should you tarry, Lord Jesus, pass it on to the future Christian generation. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.